This is a special podcast from the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors, 2019 Chronic Disease Academy. Dr. Judy Monroe, President and CEO of the CDC Foundation, moderates a panel on the data frontier, challenges and innovations occurring in the field. Panelists include Dr. Peter Briss from the CDC's National Center for Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion, Dr. Tom Land from the University of Massachusetts School of Medicine, Dr. Karen Smith from the California Department of Public Health, and Kurt Wallenbaugh of Carrot Health. The panelists will discuss how data is influencing healthcare delivery, health policy, and disease prevention. It's a real privilege for me to uh, be your moderator today for this distinguished group of panelists that are going to be focusing on a very important and timely uh, topic. Certainly using data to tackle public health threats is both old and it's emerging. So we've used data, as you all know, for thousands of years actually to tackle health-related issues. In fact, it was back in 3180 BC in Egypt that was the first recorded epidemic where they had used some data. And then the first public health action, which really this is about. And so that has been, that was attributed in 1348 with the bubonic plague epidemic starting the Black Death. And it was back then that in Venice, they put together, they appointed three guardians of, of public health to look for disease on the ships. And then if there were, if the diseases were on the ships, they would prevent them from coming into port. So that was a new frontier and that was 1348. But here we are in the year 2019 and we have a new data frontier thanks to today's revolution in information technology. So the question is, can today's public health ship sail safely and come into dock? Can we seize the opportunities? Can we overcome the challenges? And can we learn from other sectors? Public health data obviously is important for many, many areas. Uh, as you all know all too well, epidemiological implications like disease surveillance, outbreak prediction and prevention, informing decisions regarding public health uh, interventions, monitoring progress, assessing impact at the demographic level, or things like identifying hidden social networks that may be important to our work. So I'm sure that you all agree that the opportunities are both exciting, but they're also daunting given today's technology. Data for public health action can come from various sources, as we all know. It might come from pharmacies and purchasing patterns. It may come from commuting traffic or from schools and work attendance, mobile phones, social media. All of this can help predict outbreaks or the rise in chronic disease or new trends, and it can be quite a game changer, but only if adequate measures for capacity building, technological advancement, data privacy, logistics, and governance uh, are put into place. For many of you, you probably have a battle cry out there. I've heard this uh, actually recently at the Gates Foundation. The champions that are really trying to advance public health, their battle cry is free the data. And so we know in electronic health records, we have rich data that can help advance our understanding and actions to prevent and manage chronic disease. But that flow to public health sometimes is non-existent or it might be sluggish in, in some places. So I look forward to exploring with our, our panelists today both the opportunities that uh, we're now afforded with our new technology as well as the challenges. In this discussion that we're about to embark on, I hope that we'll look to the future and strive to bring our conversation to a number of important topics such as the impact of technology on public health work, data collection and use, the learnings from other sectors about assembling and utilizing data and into these public health, uh, into the public health context, and the opportunities that are available to work with the private sector 
to advance and extend our work. So there is a new frontier in front of us. So let's use this panel as an opportunity to help inform the roadmap that we'll need to navigate that uh, frontier in front of us and reach the promise that exists in our new technologies and new ways to gather, review, and apply data. I am reminded of a quote from Charles Kettering. He was the very uh, prolific inventor, the founder of Delco and head of research at GM. And he said, there will always be a frontier where there is an open mind and a willing hand. So with that, I'm going to turn to our panelists uh, who've been introduced already. And uh, we'll start, uh, Karen, with you uh, for the uh, first question for our panelists. We would like to know, what is your data frontier? What are you looking to achieve? What challenges are you facing? And with those challenges, what innovative strategies and solutions are working for you? I'm going to start a little bit with some of the work that we've done over the past three to four years, which has to... How many of you have multiple data registries, disease registries? You're kidding. Not all the hands went up? Okay. So most of us doing chronic diseases, we have, a, you know, we have multiple different registries. We have about 22 registries at the California Department of Public Health. And we also have many other data sources. One of the challenges that we have is that we have built each one as each grant came down, and getting them to actually talk to each other and create information has been a challenge. So we, for the last three years, we've been creating what we call an ecosystem of data sharing, where all of, the, all of the registries that we currently have and everything that we are building into the future are built to talk to one another through a master data index and a lot of technology. The frontier that we're at right now is we are building a disease agnostic, I like to say, so not specific disease surveillance system for the state of California, that it's an architecture that will integrate with every emergency department in the state, every uh, hospital in the state, pre-hospital care, as well as vital records data, which we maintain, and prescription drug management programs. So you can tell from that last one, part of what we're doing is leveraging the funding that's coming out of the opioid crisis to help us build this interoperable system. Internally in our department, we have built predictive analytics capability that we're using now on our own data, but we will also be using on that data to provide us a near real-time, ongoing, not, in, not time, point in time surveillance system for virtually any disease and or condition. And, and the first use case that we're using is the adverse opioid-related outcomes in order to build this out. Step two will be after we've integrated those, is bringing in then other sector data, whether it's law enforcement data, municipal data like code enforcement data, education data, income data, housing data. Think about it. If you put all that data together and you're monitoring in real time, not only do you have situational awareness of what's going on in your state and the ability to look at trends into the future, but also I feel like particularly for chronic diseases, right now when we do a new intervention, whether it's the diabetes prevention program or something more upstream like housing. We have to build an evaluation for that project. So we're building evaluation systems, we're taking them down when the funding goes. We're building another system, we're taking them down. The problem with the joy of chronic diseases is that most of them are stem from the same societal issues and therefore in theory should respond to the same sorts of interventions. If you have a fully integrated surveillance system that includes local level, address level data, so you can be geographically specific, you don't have to create those evaluation systems over and over and over again. Because now what you can do is see what is the impact overall on a community of your interventions. You probably, you will always have to do certain kinds of outcome data, but it gives you tremendous power 
power. And in the aggregate, you begin to see, are things shifting? And I think that's especially important when you start doing large interventions over separate. So if you, if you have a large healthcare system that wants to invest in social determinants of health, like we were hearing earlier, you really need to have not just health outcomes, but you also have to understand, are they having an impact on social determinants of health? And that's not data that we own. And therefore, we have to build that interoperable system to follow it. So that's our data. For, ch challenges are obviously funding, sustainable funding. And, and for California, the sheer size and complexity of the uh, electronic health records and the health exchanges is, uh, is requires a lot of concentrated time and energy. We are not a state that has one or two health exchanges. We have literally hundreds. And so that's been the biggest challenge for us. But we are steadily working our way into it. We are learning from the Biosense platform. I don't know if any of you are participating in that, but it's a, a nationwide syndromal surveillance system. But then we're also working with our colleagues on the e-clinical bridge, or e electronic case reporting, and learning a lot from how that's progressing. So those are some of the examples that we're working from. Okay, we'll move to our next panelist. I think part of, part of what I see is that the frontier is looking at those boundaries and being willing to cross the boundaries. And so much of the resistance that people have to moving across boundaries isn't so much the change, which is also a big issue, but it's also the fear of oversight. People, people in government, especially who are own vast, enormous amounts of data, also know that, that by using that data, you can look at whether the, the programs and policies were effective. And so being willing to accept the, the evaluation, the judgment of, uh, of evaluators who are assessing the programs and policies that are implemented is, is critical to being able to move across other boundaries. And so I th you know, one of the things that I think is, is also really important is that for, for the most part, when we talk about health, we count health events. It's like there's X number of this. I read, I read you know, there's 147 new cases of, of measles in New York City, so we have to have a, there's mandatory vaccinations in New York City. So the frame of mind so often is that we count things and we, we judge high and low based on the, the numbers that we see. But many times we have imperfect data that doesn't allow us to count in information. And so trying to create data systems that look at interrelationships among information to say, I can cover those gaps. And I know Kurt's got lots of examples of that that he can talk about. But I think it's critically important to begin to utilize the, the power of the new statistical techniques, new data modeling techniques to be able to fill in the gaps of information to get those gray areas. When I go and see some of the really pretty maps, the GIS maps that are out there, I think, well, you know, people don't actually, their health doesn't uh, change when they cross the boundary of a zip code or they cross a boundary of a county or something. That what they, that much more of what we need to understand is a, is a fluid situation and that we need to represent the fluidity of that data, both in the information that we present to people because it's more meaningful to them, but at the same time, it's also more useful for us to be able to determine the effectiveness of what we do. And so I think if we're gonna do this, we have to take some chances. Linking public and private data means that we have partners that are non-traditional and we have to accept that those partners may have different objectives. So private industry is likely to want to make a profit off of what, what they're uh, using the data for. There are circumstances where that should just be fine. 
And so we have to get past our initial fear of partnerships that prevent us from working across the boundaries in order to improve the health of the public. That's great. Thank you. And as long as the private profit then leads to more corporate responsibility and donations, that, well, I think I'm, that, I'm all for that. I, th I think so, yes. Wouldn't that be the way they work? Kurt? All right, so as promised, I'm going to have everyone stand up for a minute. We're going to do a little thought exercise. So everyone who's standing, if you uh, read a print, a paper newspaper, remain standing. Everyone else sit down. All right, so, so of those who are still standing, if you own a dog, remain standing. All right, last question, I promise. Remain standing if you drive a Honda, a Mitsubishi, or an Audi. All right, so statistically, there are about two to 5% of you standing, so it's about right. Those of you who are left standing, based on those three questions, if we were to segment this population, you have the least probability of contracting a chronic illness of anyone in this room, so congratulations. <laughs> so how do we know that? How, how can we collect that data and how can we use that data on behalf of our organizations to predict the incidence uh, and forecast future incidents of chronic illness? So I, I work for a company called Carrot Health and we measure variation in consumer behavior. And so what does that mean? So I'll give you two examples from a study we did with a pre-diabetic population. And we'll take two individuals, we'll call them Matt and Jim. They're both the same age, they're both 58 years old, they're both male, they both live in the same zip code. So to get to, to uh, Tom's point earlier, in that same zip code, we're masking a lot of risk if we're looking at that analysis across the whole population. But if we look at Matt and Jim side by side, being the same age, gender, and zip code, an actuary would give them the same level of, of risk. They have the same level of actuary risk if I'm selling life insurance or, or other uh, sort of mortality-based products. They also happen to have had almost identical lab results. Uh, so they've recently been had uh, blood tests with high blood glucose readings, putting them in a pre-diabetic status. They have high blood pressure, uh, slightly overweight. So they're in a, a rising risk category, but not too complex. So from a retrospective claims risk model or a clinical risk score, we're also going to assign them the same value. Right? There's not enough data in the electronic medical record to peel them apart and to understand which one might need an intervention and how might that nudge or that intervention differ between those two individuals. Yet when we enrich their behavior with lifestyle and behavior data, with social behavioral barriers to health, with environmental risk, economic risk factors and others, we can actually forecast that Matt and Jim have about a 900%, a ninefold difference in clinical uh, spend risk over the next 12 to 24 months. Some of the factors that, that uh, show us high there, uh, Jim shows high signs of social isolation risk. He's divorced, he lives alone, he doesn't spend money on fitness products, he doesn't travel. We find people who travel tend to be healthier than the cohort that does not, whether for work or pleasure and a number of other, other things we can control for. Jim also doesn't vote very often, and we find that people who vote the most frequently tend to be more connected in their communities. They have better access to care, they have better support network of friends and family to help nudge them back to health, and Jim does not exhibit that behavior. Matt, on the other hand, is married and has support at home, which is correlated with better health for those with chronic illnesses, uh, particularly for males. He travels, he spends money on fitness products, he votes regularly, and he owns a dog. So why did I ask the dog question earlier? Well, we find, particularly for diabetics, pet ownership is correlated with better health outcomes, and dogs are better than cats, no, no offense. 
<laughs> but they just are, right. <laughs> so, but when you, when you peel apart that data and you start asking why, well, what, what does pet ownership have to do with diabetes? I, I, had, uh, I had one physician, when we shared this data with him, he, he suggested that they become the puppy company and they would mail puppies to diabetics and everything would just be fine. <laughs> which is where we point out this is, this is correlative data, not causal data, right? The puppy's not causing better health per se, so that won't work. But what we do know is that to own a dog requires a certain level of fitness. You have to be able to walk the dog. Uh, and we also believe that when walking the dog, you encounter other dog walkers, and that reduces your, your uh, potential for social isolation. You have social encounters which uh, help insulate against that social vulnerability. So there are a couple of, of interlocking pieces there which allow us to say pet owners have a slightly uh, more fit and slightly less risky population than those with no pets. But getting to the localization of this data, that relationship only holds true in urban and suburban communities. You move to a rural community where you can open the door and let the dog walk outside without you, and all of a sudden that pet ownership becomes slightly negatively correlated with better health. So again, knowing who you're talking about and what the population is is really critical. And that's effectively what Carrot does. We collect that data at the individual level across every adult in the United States and have built a data set that allows us to predict future health risk based on those social and behavioral barriers. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Thank you, Kurt. So my son actually met his wife at a dog park, and they're very happy. They're very happy. So Peter, last. So, so why, why did I agree to be last on this panel? Um, so, so public health data is, is like the windshield through which we see where we're driving, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an essential public health function. And, at PLUs, people like us have a lot of, of, of great history to build on, right? You know, and so, so almost always when you see U.S. national or U.S. state level data, and it's talking about what are the big problems in the states, where are they going, are they getting better or getting worse, who's most affected, those kind of questions are almost always based on CDC or more broadly public health data. And so we have a lot to build on. Whether we're identifying the huge burden issues, which are always chronic disease things, right? Whether we're, we're addressing the small number of risk factors that drive most of that, whether we're trying to, to reduce disparities apropos of our discussion this morning, as Lisa Richardson likes to say we're all doing disparities work all the time, right? Whether we're trying to identify the populations that are most affected by a particular problem. I've been jazzed by the recent cardiovascular stuff about cardiovascular disease in younger people. And I apologize to my CDC colleagues who've heard this joke before, but I'm particularly jazzed about that work as I get older because anything that defines younger people as less than 65 is awesome. <laughs> Um, we're addressing emerging issues like e-cigarettes and opioid use, right? We're addressing re-emerging issues where we have a lot of work left to do, like maternal mortality, right? And we are, and we need to continue to be a, a, a trusted go-to source. And then being the trusted go-to source is getting harder and harder, right? So, so I, I said at the beginning that it's like that public health surveillance is like the windshield, and the bad news is that it's been said that it's like trying to drive your car based on average speeds on the highway from three years 
years ago, right? Um, and we, we got to get more local, we got to get more relevant, we got to get faster, right? The, the backbone of our work historically, I would, I would say, has been the, in chronic disease, has been the big national surveys. It's, it's not actually counting individual cases, it's the big national surveys. And those are going to continue to be the backbone of a lot of our work, but we're going to need to supplement that with a lot of other approaches and a lot of new partners. Very good, thank you. So Peter didn't, he, he signed up to be last. I'm gonna make you first now. Ready for the next question? Okay. Um, so we have challenges and some solutions, but let's talk a minute about where each of us is going from here. Data is a critical issue for private and public stakeholders. So how can public and private sectors collaborate on this? Let's, let's dig into that deeper. It's been touched on by some of the speakers, but. Uh, so I've said already that we're living in a changing environment, right? And and in a sense, our colleagues from Levitt this morning talked about it talked about Moses. I'm gonna I'm gonna move to Job, right? And and to paraphrase paraphrase Job, it's technology taketh and technology giveth away, right? And so so the things that technology is getting in our way on is is that's a lot of the reason for why surveys aren't helping us as much anymore. So things like robocalls and call blocking and cell phones is what's driving the de decline in surveys. Surveys are gonna to continue to be important, um, but we're gonna to need to, I think we're gonna to need to streamline them, get much more focused about asking, asking the most important questions um, so, that, so that people can actually answer the questions in a limited amount of time. Um, and then we're gonna to need to work with a lot of um, what for us are non-traditional partners to supplement our traditional data collection approaches. So things like um, Areas where technology is giving include healthcare data and electronic health information, right? And so in the in the Chronic Disease Center today, there are some number like three dozen projects of of trying to use EHI data. Tom's doing it. Tom's doing at least one of those. He'll likely talk more about men's. Um, there are ongoing. Um, cool experiments happening now about trying to use social media data for public health purposes. So people in the center are using things like images from Google Street View to assess community walkability, right? In a in a in, in a way where what we did, what we used to do in the stone knives and bearskins era is sort of walk laboriously block to block, right? And and we can get better and faster, right? Um, people are doing in OSH. People are doing similar things with hookah bars from from with. Google Maps, right? There are, I had more to say, there are going to be innovative data approaches like wearable devices. Hold, hold up your wearable devices if you're wearing one. Um, um, we've talked already a little about analytic approaches that are going to help us. So we're going to have to do more about modeling um, to fill in gaps. We're going to have to do things like small area analysis to get more local. Right, or to address areas where we just can't measure stuff directly because they're too sparsely populated, right? We gotta do better. I talked about PLUs, people like us once before in this talk, but, the, but we gotta do better about talking to, to a broader range of people and not just talking to each other. So public health has a, has a, has a long and not necessarily proud history, I would say, about, about talking to ourselves um, in sort of public health jargon, and, and we need to do better about making our, making our work more accessible to everybody else um, who are actually the people we serve. Um, so people are doing great things like cancer visualizations, the 500 city map books, right? Um, and there, there needs to be more of that. And finally, when we're thinking about all of this stuff, sometimes I think we've, we've let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Um, and so, so, so maybe sometimes 
um, being right to just two decimal points instead of five decimal points and getting there faster might be a positive change. So, so with that, I will close. Thank you. Kurt? Yeah, I, I would divide uh, kind of where we're going and some of the challenges really into two categories. Uh, and one category is more data. Clearly more data is better and we're doing a good job, I think, of collecting a lot of passively generated data, uh, more actively generated data, more real-time data getting into, as we push personally the boundaries into things like uh, real-time spending patterns from credit card data or uh, IP tracking to better understand where people are going on an online basis, getting access to more government records, some of what uh, you're talking about in California, trying to stitch all those together in a way that we can get a better real-time surveillance on a, on a population to look for those inflection points is really valuable to being able to understand when to intervene and how to intervene. And that brings me to the second point, which I think is, is really the, the more important one. As was mentioned at the very beginning here, if there's no action taken based on a piece of differential data, you're better off not knowing that piece of data. Uh, and so the, the real challenge is what can we do about the information that we have? If we predict that there is risk based on uh, lifestyle or behavioral barriers to health, unless we can solve those barriers, there, there's really no point in, in understanding it. And I think that's where we're headed, right? If you, if you kind of back up and look at the macro picture, we know how to reduce the incidence of chronic disease by 80 to 90%. And it's really based on five variables. It's fitness, it's smoking, it's alcohol, uh, body fat, and, uh, and diet. And I'd probably add social isolation to that one as a sixth. But if you behave within a healthy boundary for four or five of those variables, you're gonna cut your risk of most chronic illnesses by 80 to 90% and most cancers by 60% but less than 3% of the country lives that lifestyle. So how do we support individuals in the lifestyle changes that they need over the course of a, you know, 40, 50, 60 years to be able to prevent those diseases from showing up? You know, as we look across our data today, 11% of the country exhibits zero of those healthy behaviors. And you've got, you know, 80% that are living a lifestyle almost guaranteed to result in one or more chronic illnesses. Well, the challenge we have, and this is where I think we get into public policy, is we're measuring outcomes on a year-over-year -year basis for things that take decades to show up. Uh, and so that, that's almost impossible to do, right? If I have a diabetes prevention program and I know it takes three to seven years before it starts showing up in the total cost of care, yet I'm measuring the results and the outcomes on a year-over-year -year basis for uh, whether it's a for-profit or not-for-profit payer or provider, there's no way to fund that, that investment in that program. <laughs> Employers don't invest in these programs because the average tenure of an employee is less than three years in most, most organizations. So how do we bridge that gap? And I think that's where we have to get back to the public sector and say, is there a way to finance these investments over a longer term horizon? We can identify where that risk is, but let's give consumers a fighting chance to push back against sedentary devices and sedentary lifestyles, against uh, food and diet changes that have introduced sugar and corn syrup into massive quantities into our, into our uh, food ecosystem. How do we help the individual consumer with the nudges they need to prevent those behaviors from taking root at an early age? Uh, and that's got to come from, uh, from an external source. Uh, I think there are ways we can guide that with data, but we need help. Thank you. Uh, and I guess so the starting point for help that I would suggest is that we need to formalize partnerships between the different spheres of people who use information. So government uses information to report on the health of the public. Private industry uses uh, information to ultimately make a profit, but 
profit may also coincide with the health of the public. And academia uses data to promote their careers, but also to find things that promote the health of the public. So there's something in common across all three of those. And I think that just needs to be codified in certain ways so that all of the different groups feel as if there's value added to their activity and that their work is both respected and not feared. And so I, if we can come together, and I think um, uh, Karen talked about the opioid work in, in uh, California and Massachusetts has also done a fair amount of work trying to link administrative data sets to understand the opioid crisis better. And there was a formal partnership across a private industry and government and fear brought those brought the partners together because people were looking at a five-fold increase in opioid deaths and to build something out of that, that that lasts beyond the crisis is what you really want to do. You don't want to just say, well, that was really nice working with you. See you next crisis. So the point is that that always have in your mind the, the vision of how you continue to work together and how you can build upon the recent effort. And so in, in the in what we've done in Massachusetts, the work has focused on trying to, again, utilize these partnerships. The, um, Peter mentioned the, the men's program, which is trying to bring EHR data together from disparate partners, both within a state and across state boundaries. But then we're never going to get all EHRs interconnected. It's, it's in some statistically pointless to do that. So to understand how do you get something sufficiently representative in order to make projections across that, you can come up with a fairly efficient system to project information where you don't know if somebody has a dog or a cat or anything. They just happen to, you don't even have to have any EHR data, but you can still project the risk factors within fairly granular areas if you have if you have a reasonably large sample of information so the goal is then to pull everything together in a way that allows you to not have to say i'm not i i can't start working on this until i have everything all together and it's a perfect system it's to use what you have and then to use the partners and the knowledge of the that each of the partners has in order to make uh, assessments and judgments about uh, imperfect, messy data that allows you to make good public health judgments for the general population. Thank you. Karen, you get the last word on this question. Okay, so um, a couple of, th I'm going to echo a couple of things that my colleagues have said. So one is, for me, the biggest, uh, most important challenge is how do we turn all this, so building the system is challenging enough, but how do you turn that into action? Because ultimately, I don't, I'm not an academic anymore. I don't want to sit around and just project it. God, you all do. Thank you. I know you're not all academics, by the way. Um, but what I want to do is I want to be able to use that to actually put interventions in place that we think will work for whatever the issue is. And, and we are seeing some of that already happening. But that's a very, um, it's, it, it's a really challenging thing to do from, from the perspective of government. And, and part of that is because we really are limited at this point. In, and the other point I want to echo is we really do need different kinds of data. So we've actually been working a little bit with Amazon to look at how they use their data. Not because they use it for a lot of things. They don't just use it to, to make a profit and to like make sure that that little pop-up is exactly the thing that you didn't realize you wanted but you really, really want. Um, so they're really good at that. that, that that's that whole market 
marketing piece that we have to get better at in public health as well. But we're using some of their ideas actually to drive our innovation internally in the department. Um, there's a lot that you can learn from your own internal data about how you do business and getting better at doing business because nobody's ever going to give us more money, okay? So for those of you in the room, if you're sitting around waiting for that next big, you know, sort of permanent ongoing funding for chronic disease, um, I'm not a believer. So, so my, my thing is how do we do um, at, at least as much as we're doing with less money, if not do less, but do it better and, and be able to put things in place, do what the private sector does, which is rapid cycle innovation. And that's one of the things we're really trying to move to. Because you have data that suggests that this inter intervention should work. And you put it in place and you, you monitor what's happening. And if it's not working in a certain timeline, you take it out. Now that's anathema in the world of chronic disease, I realize. But it actually really can work in certain settings things, and it, but we're not very good at that. For one thing, I had a really knockdown, drag out conversation with a, a tech guru who's made many, 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 many millions of dollars in a startup company, and some genius thought it would be good to have him come in and talk to us in government about how you have to innovate, you shouldn't be afraid to fail. And I said, excuse me, but I have news for you. So you're using venture capital money and your own money or whatever to fail which is great because I agree with him, you learn more when you fail. The public does not want us to fail with their tax dollars. That's the fastest way to get fired and it's the fastest way to have your entire important thing that you're working on go down the tubes. So somehow we have to, we have to work within that culture that is this isn't our money and it's not venture capital money, although we may have an opportunity for that. But this can actually work. There's a group in Staten Island, they're a PPS, a preferred provider system in Staten Island that is doing some amazing work where they have, into, because they're a community and the community came together around health in general, and they've done this with diabetes, but I'm gonna talk about opioids just because I think it's a good example. They have connected law enforcement data, behavioral health data. This is a private entity, right? A preferred provider, a health care system, if you will. And as as well as their own health data and integrated it in using predictive analytics, they've been able to figure out who is at greatest risk of an adverse outcome from an opioid, whether that's overdose, and not only that, but where in their community those things are. And what, so what they've been doing is they will put interventions in place, and they're working with the community around this for 90 days. If they don't see a return on investment in terms of dropping then either the number of adverse outcomes or the amount of money that they're spending, they take it out and do something different. And they're doing this, and it's really, they have made some amazing differences in terms of cost savings. Now they're, they're not just looking at cost savings, they're very explicit about the fact that their cost savings mean people are not coming to the emergency department, people are not dying. And I think that we need to get, you know, I used to have a real sort of thing about healthcare and, you know, private sector healthcare because of the money thing. My experience has been that that's not all people are looking at. Um, their cost savings really are savings in, in adverse health outcomes. And so that for me is the, is the new frontier for government because we really, it's very, we're very different than the private sector. People saying you should run like the private sector have no idea what government is or how we work, and I think that's particularly true in public health. That doesn't mean we can't be partners in doing some really, really innovative things. Um, we also need to get better at getting hold of, why can everybody have our data and Walgreens won't give me their prescription data? 
That annoys me because that data combined with art, why should we be the ones giving it to them? I want that private sector data because I want to know who's buying health equipment, who's doing, you know, I don't want to have to do a point in time study, pay masses of money to a, 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 Cal, a you know, University of California in my case, to do a study of X. I want to actually be able to study the population ongoing as it moves across our you know, 39 million people and try to figure out where we should intervene. Yeah, thank you. That's a great note to end on. I think we're, we're coming to the end. So I do want to thank all of you for your engagement and want to thank our terrific panel for their uh, uh, wonderful discussion. For more podcasts like this or for more information about the Academy, visit chronicdisease.org.